Transfiguration Sunday. It's the Sunday of the year that helps us pivot from Epiphany to this Wednesday, Ash Wednesday, and then to Lent. And I want to place our readings before us this morning, the Transfiguration, that it you know, can obviously be seen on many, many different levels. Uh, but to see it this morning for us and for our own formation as a pivot to what we hope might be a transfiguring Lenten season. So our readings this morning pull back the curtains, so to speak, to reveal a reality that's always there, but not always in our conscious awareness. And maybe Paul had something like this in mind when he said in 1 Corinthians 13, that we don't yet see everything clearly, that we're kind of squinting through a fog, peering through a mist, But it won't be long, Paul says, before the weather clears and the sun shines bright. And we'll all see it then, Paul says, as clearly as God sees us. So in these mountaintop experiences, like with Moses or Jesus being transfigured, or the psalmist having a breakthrough to see what's real, this is the apostolic tradition, you might say. But I don't mean that in its technical sense. Maybe we should say this is the testimony of Jesus' first friends. The people who first tried to take him serious to understand who he was, what God was doing in and through him, what it meant for them. They knew that on some big things we don't see clearly. But on the other hand, Peter said in 2 Peter, let me tell you what happened to us, his first friends. We were not following, he says, cleverly devised stories. We were eyewitnesses of his majesty. We saw what was real. And in those moments of confusion, we now know there's a reality that lies sort of behind our conscious awareness that when we remind ourselves of it and make ourselves conscious of it, it is fundamental to our following Jesus an increasingly difficult world. So again, just a part of the tradition has always been a part of Christian spirituality, a part of following Jesus, is learning to notice the fact that behind our dull or muted or maybe grimy curtains, you know, just think of our common, painful, emotional, physical, spiritual symptoms, that there's always lying behind that this shining reality that is willing our good And this is what this collection of Transfiguration Sunday readings are meant to say to us. So, for instance, if you look in our reading in Exodus 24, the Lord says to Moses, not primarily come up to this mountain. If you look at your text, it says, come up to me. So here you have Israel in the sort of the biggest historical, you know, transformation of Israel's history with the people of God and the Lord says to Moses essentially I need to show you what's real here come up to the mountain with me the one true creator Lord so that you can see what's real and what's really happening here and so then again look stay here and just notice the peacefulness in that stay here ground yourself center yourself here 
and then I'll give you instruction for my people. And we might sort of paraphrase that by saying, and I'll make myself known to you and to the people and what's going on here. And keeping in this same vein of the greatness that lies often out of our conscious awareness, Psalm 2 is essentially trying to make sense of how great God really is in contrast to what's in your face. I mean, I mean, we can't imagine this, but just, it's such an easy example. I mean, just try to imagine being North Korean or living under a 20th century brutal dictator. And this is what the psalmist is getting at. He's trying to make sense of how great God really is in contrast to kind of normal, brutal human rulers. And so verse four, if you look at it there, envisions God kind of behind the scenes, you know, behind this curtain, looking down on the plotting strategies and pomp of the world's most fabulous rulers, you know, maybe thinking here of a Ramses or a Nebuchadnezzar. And while everybody else on earth shivers in terror, you, we have this lovely little picture of God-like giggling, unfazed, non-anxious, sure that what he intended will come to its completion. And so this psalm is a celebration of ultimate authority. And it sounds a little odd in our ears today. We don't celebrate ultimate authority very well because it works against our more native sense of wanting to be autonomous. And even those of us who would say we believe in God and might even use words like omnipotence and omniscience to describe him, that's a very different thing than actually yielding our sense of ourself and our sense of control of our lives to him. But I want you to consider something with me here. Okay, so let's just say, all right, we get it. We're not in ultimate control. And then I want you to try this on for size. What if that's not a loss? What if that's actually a gain? What if the invitation there is to just breathe a huge sigh of relief that I don't have to be in control? What if it's an invitation to rest in God's love, to be at peace in the power of God? And I know as soon as I say that, y'all go, yeah, 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 that, that's right. I mean, right, as soon as, we, as soon as we're conscious of that, we get it. So then what's going on that it's not so often our lived reality? Why is this so hard to hear and even harder to experience today? And I just happened to notice this week an article in Bloomberg, you know, it's the well-known business periodical. It caught my attention because the headline said, social media is driving people insane. <laughs> I mean, that's a, I didn't make that up. That is a, you can Google it right now if you want. It's, I think it's, the, think it's the current issue of Bloomberg. So the article says, according to the American Psychological Association, the constant checking of devices harms mental health by drastically increasing stress. 43% of Americans say that they're checking their emails, texts, or social media accounts constantly, especially about cultural or political issues. And they, they, they think that what's happening is that this is actually too much information for the human heart and brain to process, and too little safe community in which to process these sometimes deeply troubling things. Now, I don't want a show of hands, but I know I heard dozens, if not scores of times in my regular life, which has to include you guys, 
This last past holiday season, how many of you were really worried about having to be with certain family members who are big supporters of whoever? Right? Like, oh my God, what's Thanksgiving going to be like with Uncle Bill, you know? Or who's going to talk Aunt Mary off the cliff, right? And so what's happening is that our increasing polarization makes these very difficult things to talk about, or difficult things to process, almost impossible to talk about, and it's just increasing our stress. According to this American Psychological Association survey, 65% of their respondents said that they knew they needed to practice a digital detox. While I was looking at that, I, I must have saw a footnote or something, and I saw a slightly older study, I think it's maybe two or three years old, from UCLA, that said over the last couple decades, America has transformed into the planet's undisputed worry champion. That according to the National Institute of Mental Health, the United States is now the most anxious nation in the world. So I'm thinking about this this week. And I'm thinking about you, my beloveds. I'm thinking about Orange County and California and America and the upset all over the world. And uh, obviously I have not even one-tenth of one percent right to think like the Apostle Paul, but it flitted through my mind, that passage, I can't even remember where it is right now, where Paul says, I'm out of my mind to be talking this way. I think it's in Corinthians somewhere where he's defending his apostleship and he says, you know, it's crazy for me to be talking this way. And I feel like I'm about to have one of those moments. Like, it just feels crazy for me to be saying this out loud in public. But I want to say, because I believe it, that our vision for Holy Trinity of creating a weekly sacred space that is marked by thoughtfulness and beauty and quiet is more important, more necessary, and more right than it was when I first thought of it seven years ago. It is crucial, I think, that this holy medication be offered in public to our world. It is silence and solitude, learning to notice, learning to be alert, not only to what's real in our world, but to what lies behind the veil, so to speak. Learning to be alert to that is fundamental to Christian spirituality, and it cannot be done when our minds are constantly occupied by what's wrong, what's broken, who hurts, what hurts, what's going wrong, what's the trajectory of the world, where's America going? As long as all that swirls in our mind, we never have one of those moments where Elijah sees chariots of fire and realizes it's okay. Stephen literally taking his last breath as hard, you know, boulders are being hurled on him. He looks up and he sees the doorway to heaven open and sees Jesus sitting at the right hand of God. Now that's very technical language. Seeing Jesus at the right hand of God means God is expressing his eternal purposes through Jesus and it's all going to be okay. Or when Jesus is unfairly being arrested in the garden and knows that he's about to take the first steps into this brutal beatings and harsh treatment and ultimate crucifixion and everybody around him is freaking out, he says to Peter, put your sword away. Can't you see that I could call on myriads of angels? That's what's true. That's what's most real. It doesn't mean that the things we read about in the New York Times or Bloomberg or whatever aren't real. It just means there's another reality that lies behind them, which we're invited to secure ourselves in, but you cannot do it if you don't still yourself. 
If you don't practice silence, we don't just throw those in the service for the fun of it. We're trying to teach you to practice silence in gentle little ways. I mean, Beth and I have probably argued 20 times about whether we should even have quang playing. But we think, well, people are so unaccustomed to true silence. It's so hard for them. Let's just sort of at least hold them a little bit with some music. I mean, what we are trying to do in our weekly worship is carefully prepared to say, let's find at least one hour and 15 or hour and 20 minutes of our life a week where we can come into a place that is intentionally sacred. It's intentionally thoughtful. It's intentionally quiet. And it's intentionally beautiful. You might say, well, Todd, well, what's the big deal with beauty? Because if the whole person is in mind when we think of spiritual formation into Christ-likeness, and it is, then there are parts of your heart and soul and brain that can't be accessed by my teaching alone as clear as it is. Thank you for laughing. <laughs> there are just aspects of the human brain and the human soul that are accessed better in things like silence and solitude and beauty. So I just wanna say for me, talking crazy out loud in public, I think this is a great place for all the nuns in your life who don't belong to any religion, all the duns. This room is full of people who at one time were done with church. And for all the people increasingly going crazy with this world, this is a great place to have them as a way of centering their heart in what's real and I really like this, reordering what we love. You see, what's wrong with the Ramses of the world or the Nebuchadnezzars of the world was what they loved. They loved power. They loved control. They loved prestige. They loved pomp and circumstance. They weren't first thinking theologically. It was about disordered loves. And what Moses learns on the mountain is well-ordered heart. What the psalmist is suggesting is a sort of attenuated heart towards what's really real. I mean, just a little commercial, I think it's next week in our um, pre-service Sunday school class, we're gonna be doing James K. Smith's book, You Are What You Love. Smith, in my opinion, is making one of the most important contributions to discipleship being made in the last few years. And essentially what Jamie wants to say is that our most fundamental orientation to the world is love. That is to say, we live towards our heart's longings and desires. And that this is our second nature from which we act without thinking. And so the great contribution that I think Jamie's making is this. He asks this question, what if discipleship begins not with what do you believe? And Jamie playfully says, we often turn ourselves into brains on a stick. But he wonders, and I agree with him, what if discipleship begins with what do you want? Ramses, Nebuchadnezzar, Todd, Peter, what do you want? What is the present structure of your desires? And learning to be attentive to what we love, to the habits of our hearts and our imaginations, again, is core to followership of Jesus but it can't be done in the running, crazy kind of world that we all live in. We need moments like this where we can be quiet. So the psalmist is actually calling for something like this. 
calling us to love God, his power and his goodness. And he's hoping that this love will then lead us to the practical knowledge that those in power don't actually have ultimate power, that only God has that, and that he will bring his creation to its intended completion. And then lastly, if we look uh, at our gospel reading in Matthew 17, I just want you to think this thought, because when we read passages like this, this can sometimes disappear into the background. You need to think that these first followers of Jesus were at least as smart as you. I mean that. They had at least probably your IQ. Now, they wouldn't have known everything we know, obviously, but these were intelligent people. Unschooled, but they were intelligent people. But they were down-to-earth people who had left everything to follow Jesus. They weren't walking around shaping a, you know, intellectual Christology. They weren't walking around, you know, thinking about writing systematic theology. They were experiencing a person. And this event of the transfiguration let them know, I think, something like this. Wow, this is crazy. Like, this is seriously crazy. But there's something real here. And what a great thing to know is they now turn themselves to Jerusalem. The way Matthew locates this story in his evangelistic gospel is that it's, it's the pivot towards Jerusalem. And it's as if Matthew knows that similar to Moses in the, that pivotal moment in Israel's history, that Jesus' first followers were also coming to a pivotal moment and that they needed to see what was real. That when all hell began to break loose, it was going to be really important that they had a ground for their being and seeing who Jesus really loves. Because it was all going to be tested at arrest, trial, crucifixion, burial. And just think of them trying to take up the task, just try to imagine this, to take up the task of following Jesus when he was no longer bodily present. You just think about how you grieve at the death of a grandmother, a sibling. And now try to think of the horror of trying to say I'm a follower of Jesus when he's no longer bodily present to you. But what if you knew, because you heard Peter and John tell about it, that no, there's something more to Jesus. Not only does something transphysical emanate from him, but he's enveloped in a whole other reality. That's the cloud. And in this reality in which Jesus is more than we see him to be and the reality which surrounds him and that he embodies is more than we think it is, there's also a voice there. And again, voice here's a little bit technical for that which is in control of human history, that which is determinative. Again, not Ramses, not Nebuchadnezzar. They're real, but not ultimately determinative. What's determinative is this light that is in Jesus, this reality that surrounds him, and this voice, like the director of a movie or something, that makes all this happen. Well, I know lots of you in this room are fans of C.S. Lewis and Chronicles of Narnia, and you may remember that passage in The Silver Chair, where Lewis has Aslan saying, here on the mountain, I've spoken to you clearly. I will not often do so down in Narnia. 
Here on the mountain, though, the air is clear and your mind is clear. As you drop down into Narnia, the air will thicken. Take great care that it does not confuse your mind. And the signs which you have learned here will not look at all as you expect them to look when you meet them there. That is why it's so important to know them by heart and to pay attention to appearances. Remember the signs, believe the signs, nothing else matters. That's the function of these texts. It's their function in the church year, it's the function in our discipleship as we pivot to Lent, is to realize that these great signs of Moses on the mountain, Jesus on the mountain, the, the epiphany of the psalmist of what's real, these are the signs. And as we come out of this quiet place, or to switch metaphors, off of this mountain, and enter back into, not Narnia, but to Orange, you know, enter back into San Anna or your Belinda, remember the signs and believe the signs, nothing else ultimately matters. So now pivoting indeed to Lent. The Father only spoke directly to earth about Jesus twice. Once at his baptism and once here at the transfiguration. And both times he says something very similar and very simple. Listen to my son. And I want to just go back and say, I'm betting my life that that happens best in a sacred, quiet, thoughtful, beautiful atmosphere. It becomes in that space that Aslan's talking about, that we take with us into the world, or as Nowen talks about cultivating an inner stillness in us through silence and solitude that actually transforms us so that we bring a new reality to us into our world as we experience it with all of its difficulties. So this is something like, you know, you might have heard your mom say to your dad or dad to your mom, you know, in, in my case, it might have been something like, now you listen to your mother. Do you remember hearing that when you were a kid? Or now you listen to your dad. Okay, what's at play there? What's at play there is apparent means something like, I want you to come into agreement with, I want you to be conformed, or I want you to change your mind. And so when God speaks out of the cloud and says, listen to my son, he means something like, accept his words, place your confidence in him, take on his mind and act accordingly. But we all know, well, it was nice rhetoric and a sermon, Hunter. Well, this is easier said than done. This is actually really hard. And Jesus knows it. And so I want you to look at the last couple of sentences of your uh, gospel reading. And see Jesus walking down off the mountain, maybe his arms around Peter and John, and saying to them, it's okay. I will love you and gently care for you amidst your dark fears and confusions. And as your master, I will guide you as my apprentices. I'll give context to what's going on. I'll interpret your spiritual experiences. All I need for you to do is pay attention. That's all I need. Just be alert. Just notice what's real. So I would say to you this morning as we come to our quiet moment,
that whatever Lenten practices or fastings you might choose this year, let them be in service to this. This is my son, the chosen one. Listen to him. And now for the last time in Epiphany, I invite you to put your liturgies down, take everything out of your hands, make yourself comfortable in your own body, and let's pivot to Lent with this breath prayer. Turn our hearts to your word. Turn our hearts toward you. Turn our hearts toward your word. Turn our hearts toward you.